fun action song. It really is a rich song. Uh, If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do with you, uh, turn to Acts chapter 20. Now, Acts chapter 20 is probably best known uh, for a section that comes later. Paul gives a speech to the Ephesian elders. Uh, We're going to, Lord willing, get to that in a couple weeks. Uh, It's maybe second best known for a story of a guy named Eutychus. I kind of hinted at this story a couple weeks ago, maybe distracted some people with the, uh, the Coles Notes version. But the story of Eutychus is certainly not a funny story. It wouldn't have been funny to be a part of. But in hindsight, uh, we get to know that the story ends well. We get to know uh, that the, the end result is good. And so there almost is a tiny bit of humor to the story. Now, it's, again, it's not a funny story. But part of the humor comes from even Eutychus's name. His name, the name Eutychus, means fortunate or lucky. Uh, so our boy Lucky here, he, uh, he was a young man or a boy, depending on the way you read the word. It could have been as young as Ben, all right? Ben, if you want to get, that, that's the low end of the range of what we're thinking for this Eutychus guy, all right? Lucky, we'll call him Lucky. So Eutychus uh, was sitting there and he was getting tired because the Apostle Paul was preaching for hours. Uh, any empathy, any sympathy here? Uh, Right answer. All right. But Paul was preaching for hours, and so Eutychus was getting tired. And so he thought, I'm going to go sit by the window. Like all you drivers uh, who have done the, the long drives at night and roll down the window to keep you away. I know who you are. Uh, you roll down that window to get the fresh air. So that's what Eutychus thought he would do. Now, the story takes a tragic turn because Eutychus falls asleep, and their windows didn't have coverings. He just fell out the window, fell three stories to his death. I told you, it's not, that part is not funny in the story. But our guy, Lucky, uh, amazingly, uh, even though he was unlucky in falling asleep and falling out of the window, God restored his life. Paul ran down, he threw himself on him, and God restored his life. He was healed. That's an incredible story. And so certainly, uh, Lucky had some bad luck, but it was amazing that he was restored back to life. And so kids, on the back of your sheets there, that's the, that's the picture you have to color in today. Eutychus uh, rising from the dead. And we see the result at the end of our our passage that we're going to be going through this morning. We see the result is that the church is encouraged. The church is encouraged. And so that's that's really the the driving force of what I want to focus on this morning. Is the encouragement that the church experiences and how really it's encouragement that characterizes the early church. In our passage today, we're going through Acts chapter 20 verses 1 through 12. Just a small section But in both verse 1 and 12, talks about the church being comforted and encouraged. So when we get a nice little bookend like that, right, that tells us, all right, let's zoom in a little bit here. This morning, we're also getting an inside scoop in these 12 verses to some of the early practices of the early church. So their patterns and practices. uh, Here's a little math formula for the kids, all right? Patterns and practices plus encouragement gets us to our big idea that the gathered church is a factory for encouragement. The gathered church is a factory of encouragement. Okay, I'll explain my little word picture there of the factory. This is maybe a bit of a mixed metaphor, but in my mind, I can't shake it. So you know when you're driving and you see this big factory and just this huge plume of uh, exhaust or smoke coming out of the smokestacks? You can picture what I'm talking about? 
Okay, a couple people, yeah. So we got these big smokestacks. We see the, the smoke coming out. What I want you to imagine is that instead of smoke, it's encouragement. Encouragement. That's a factory for encouragement. You just see it flowing out constantly. But in, in, instead of the factory, what I want you to picture is a church. And that the church has this, is a factory for encouragement. That's just constantly the stream of encouragement coming out. All right, so that's our big idea. Don't shake that word picture. We're going to come back to it a couple times. The gathered church is a factory of encouragement. And so let's read these 12 verses together, and then we'll dig, we'll dig deep into them this morning. Let's hear God's word. After the uproar ceased, now remember, uh, that uproar was uh, the, the chaos, the riot in Ephesus. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. It's the word of the Lord. And so our first point I want to see as we go through this passage, we're talking about encouragement, right? The gathered church being a factory for encouragement. Our first point is this. The church is encouraged by being present. The church is encouraged by being present. If you're taking notes, write that down. The church is encouraged by being present. Now, we've bumped into different things as we've gone through the book of Acts, and we've discussed about how some things are descriptive and some things are prescriptive. Descriptive, prescriptive. One of the hints that we can, or one of the, the clues to, to dive into these things, to know whether something is descriptive or prescriptive, is often to look uh, is there a pattern? Is this repeated in Scripture? Is there, are there repeated evidences of, of a, this being a practice or clear commands in Scripture? And so we looked at last week the healing handkerchiefs, right? That's a good example of we don't see a pattern. We don't see an explicit command. And so we're not, uh, as I joked last week, we're not starting up our handkerchief ministry. But we can also look on the opposite side and look for things that are repeated over and over and over in clear commands. And one of those is encouragement. Throughout every chapter of Acts so far, we see that the church is encouraged. 
And that doesn't always mean that things are squeaky clean, everything's going perfectly smooth. It's sometimes through the suffering, through the strain, through the trials, that the church is encouraged. Because the gospel is relentlessly pushing forward. And so I'd encourage you to do that this week. Read through, catch yourself up with Acts so far, the first 19 chapters, and, and look for every instance of encouragement. Uh, I mean, there's a guy named Barnabas, the son of encouragement, right? There's, there's a lot of encouragement in Acts. And so Paul, rightly, makes encouragement a main part of his missionary journeys. He goes from city to city. He goes from newly planted church to newly planted church, and he encourages them with the gospel. He encourages them with his presence. And sometimes that meant long detours, right? We looked at that uh, during one of his missionary journeys. He could have taken the shortcut home, but he took the long road all the way back through the mountains, back on a boat, across, and it was just quite the journey, but he did that so that he could revisit these churches. He knew that there was something important about being with these people, being present with them, that he was able to encourage them. Now, he could have, and he did send letters often. He wrote letters. That's good. We should have lots of points of contact. But he knew that he had to have a face-to-face. -face. Jen Wilkin says this about face-to-face -face contact. Complete relational joy occurs face-to-face -face in shared physical space. Nice little rhyme there, too. Complete relational joy occurs face-to-face -face in shared physical space. Our God is a always present or omnipresent God and we were created in his image to be in community and so as you consider what that means for you find ways to be present uh, certainly there's a level of presence that has been derailed uh, because of some circumstances in the world over the last year but find ways to be present with people go for walks with each other grab lunch be present Again, 2020 derailed a lot of things, and we're still figuring that out. But if anything, that's taught us that we need to be together. We need to be present with one another. And so don't slip into these new normals of being too busy or uh, being too focused on ourselves. We need to be present. Even if it's hard or even if it's inconvenient, don't let a substitute be more than a substitute. Proverbs uh, 27, 10 says this, Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. We need to be present with each other. As we look at our passage, these 12 verses, the first six, they give us uh, some geography. They give us some names. They give us some timelines. And I don't want to get lost in the forest here. There's a lot happening. And you can get a lot of insight from this timeline and these people and uh, Paul's travels as you read the letters that were written during this time. And so 2 Corinthians and the, the letter to the Romans were written during in these six verses in this kind of period of time. And so, again, in your weeks this week, if you want to kind of catch yourself up with where's Paul in this journey, you can read those letters but it's during this time, if you know the letter uh, to the first and second Corinthians, you know that it was during this time Paul was dealing with some drama. He was dealing with conflicts with the Corinthian church. So again, if you want to read those, it would be, I think, beneficial for you to kind of track along with where we're in Acts. Uh, 
he also wrote Romans, which uh, many of us know. I know there's at least one DG that's going through one of our discipleship groups that's studying through Romans. It is inspired. It is beautiful. It is a systematic uh, treatment on theology. And it's so helpful for us today. But I even love what Paul writes uh, in the first verse, uh, uh, first chapter, sorry, of Romans. Romans 1, 11 and 12. It says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And so he longed to be with them. Why? To be mutually encouraged. We need to be present with each other. So give yourself to be present with one another and be mutually encouraged. Now, it's not always easy. Paul had to change his plans, we even see in this passage, because of plot against his life. So it's not always easy, but we don't see him just hunker down and say, all right, I'll wait till the smoke clears. He presses on. I love how John writes in uh, the second epistle of John, John, uh, 2 John, verse 12. It says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. We need to be together. We need to be present. And so that's our first point. The church is encouraged by being present. We also see that the church is encouraged by giving. That's our second point. The church is encouraged by giving. It was during this time that Paul was going from church to church and he was collecting financial gifts for the Jerusalem church, for those in need in Jerusalem. It was an encouragement for them to both give and receive. And it is beautiful to give of your time and energy and resources. This is how the church is encouraged by giving, both the church receiving and the church giving. And so, members, it's our privilege to support this work in this ministry. It's our privilege. And partnering with others encourages us. This is not a strategic move, this uh, service and this sermon this morning, having Pastor Nadala here, but what a perfect example. This is just where we landed in Acts. But what an encouragement it can be, uh, Lord willing, for them, that we can support them and partner with them, but also an encouragement for us to partner on mission. The church is encouraged by giving. We also see that Paul's traveling companions, right? we got a, the good old passage you never want to read out loud with a bunch of names, but some of his traveling companions, we see representation from Macedonia and Galatia and Asia. That's encouraging. I mean, they were traveling probably for a couple of reasons, maybe to give some uh, personal security, right? Everyone was out to get Paul. Maybe they were his uh, bodyguards. Maybe they were there for security. He's collecting all these gifts. There's a level of accountability when they're traveling together. But there's also a level of mutual encouragement. This was the churches partnering together for the gospel work. And so the church is encouraged by giving. Again, we love because he first loved us. And so the second half of our passage this morning focuses in on a week in Troas. And we get an inside look at the gathered worship, some of the practices, uh, some of the um, patterns that we see arise in the early church. Now, again, as we talk about descriptive prescriptive, we don't need to just apply everything 
as much as maybe I would like that, we could have lamp-lit, multi-hour sermons. I mean, we're probably not going to make that a typical practice of what we do. Uh, nor do we want to omit what we don't see. Like, we don't see, they don't talk about corporate prayer or singing together. But what we do see is a few uh, hints, a kind of inside look at some of the practices and patterns of the early church and how uh, it really works towards that factory of encouragement. Okay, remember, keep that smokestack image going, that factory of encouragement. So let's look at uh, chapter 20, verse 7, just the first little bit. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. We can pause there. There's a lot happening. We can swim in this for a minute. First day of the week. What's that all about? First day of the week. Well, the first day of the week was Sunday. Now, any of the Jewish Christians would have been uh, used to their Sabbath being on Saturday. But all of a sudden, now we get, this is the first indication that we, we see of the early church gathering on Sundays. And it's something that's continued on for the last 2,000 years. Now, why Sundays? Why Sundays? Well, Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. And so, uh, as we mentioned earlier, as we gear up for Easter, there's extra time and attention that we consider Jesus' death and resurrection. But the church gathered on the Lord's Day on Sunday, on the first day of the week, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection every week. And so I don't say that to make less of Easter, but I say that to make more of every Lord's Day that we can be together. Every Lord's Day that we can be together. Now, we don't have to be legalistic. Uh, Are we unable to worship another day? No, certainly not. We, We can worship God anytime, any place. But there's something special. There's, it's not insignificant that we can consider to, to, to look pa- back at that heritage. 2,000 years of gathering on the Lord's Day when we are able. And so as we've looked at the church encouraged by being present, the church encouraged by giving, the church is encouraged by gathering. The church is encouraged by gathering. Regular gathering of the early church, it gives us a pattern. And so we gather to be encouraged. We, we celebrate and we proclaim that our biggest problem is taken care of in Jesus' death and resurrection. That is why we gather. If we look at Hebrews 10.24, it's a passage that's well known and we've, we've talked about more this year than many years. But Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says this, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I like that we see the opposite of uh, neglecting to gather isn't just attendance. The opposite of neglecting to gather together is encouraging one another through gathering. Now, you can be present and not be present, if you know what I mean. Maybe you're there right now, right? But you can be present and not present. But we see when, when the church is commanded to gather, the church is commanded to, to stir one another up, to love and good works, to encourage one another. And so you are here for a purpose. You are not here to be entertained. 
Uh, You're not here to tick a box of attendance, but you are here because you need to be here. We are the church. You're here to stir up one another, to encourage one another. And how? By gathering. So the church is encouraged by gathering. We need to be together. I've been really encouraged by this tiny little book. I don't know if it's a book or a booklet. I don't know when the transition happens. It's got a square spine, so I'm going to call it a book. But it's called, What If I Don't Feel Like Going to Church? And I love uh, quoting from this guy because his name is Gunnar Gunderson. What a name. Gunnar Gunderson. That's a handle. But listen to this. I was really encouraged by this tiny book. I want to read a section as we consider how the church is encouraged by gathering. And he says this. It's not all about you. I get it. It can be hard. The worship team didn't pull their song selections from your personal playlist. The pastor didn't have the time uh, or resources to craft a mesmerizing sermon with a team of presidential speechwriters. The membership may not have the perfect combination of older saints to mentor you, younger saints to energize you, mature saints to counsel you, hospitable saints to host you, and outgoing saints to pursue you. But if your church believes the Bible and preaches the gospel and practices the ordinances and serves one another, then your church has saints. And those saints are your brothers and sisters, your fathers and mothers, your weary fellow pilgrims walking the same wilderness you are, away from Egypt, led by a cloud and fire with eyes set on the promised land. This isn't a solo hike. It's a holy caravan. You see, those people you wish would pursue you... and care for you, and reach out to you, also need you to do the same for them. The pastor you wished was a better preacher is probably praying that you'd be a good listener. Those gifted people uh, whose, uh, those gifted people whose love you need also need your unique offering of love. Even those whose company you find dissatisfying or unhelpful or just plain awkward don't need your criticism but your gospel partnership, and you can't do any of those things if you're not present. So it is part of God's plan for the church that we are a gathered people. So the church is encouraged by gathering. We also see uh, one of the whys to, to why they were gathering is to break bread. As we see also the church is encouraged by breaking bread church is encouraged by breaking bread. That's our next point. Now this is likely the Lord's Supper, probably followed or possibly followed by a communal meal of some sort. I've been really helped as I've been studying through the book of Acts by author and pastor Tony Merida, and he gives us a few helpful categories for thinking about the Lord's Supper and the pattern set before us uh, by the early church. And so nice little alliteration here. The first P here, privilege. It is our privilege to share in this time together. It is our our privilege to, as Paul writes, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we do when we share in the the cup and the bread. We eat the bread or the wafer to remind us of Christ's body broken for us. Pay the penalty for sin. And we drink the juice or the wine to celebrate and proclaim Christ's blood shed for us. This is a communal meal. It's a privilege to commune with God in that time, to make sure our hearts are right before him as we reconsider and proclaim Christ's death. But it's also communal together between us. 
Think of Paul's joy when he went to these churches and when he was at this church. He was able to break bread with them. He was able to share in the Lord's Supper with them. He was able to look to his right and to his left and see sinners saved by grace. John G. Payton, a missionary to the New Hebrides, he reached a lot of unreached people with the gospel. Uh, He lived uh, well over 100 years ago, and uh, some of the people he even reached with the gospel had practiced cannibalism in their life. But here's what he has to say about uh, the first time he was able to share the Lord's Supper with them. He says, for years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. At the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of glory that well nigh broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. And so that's the same joy we have. The same joy we have, that unity of being sinners saved by grace. That no matter race, size of bank account, the car we drove in with, anything, our hands are stained with the blood of our own sins. And yet we, are, we have the privilege to share in this supper together. Now, it's easy to be individualistic, but we are a community. And so I want to encourage you, it's not weird to look around at each other as we worship. When we sing, it's so encouraging to look at that brother or sister that you know is maybe even suffering, going through a season, but they are able to say, praise the Lord, his mercy is more. That's a joy we have together. As we share in the supper together, we can do the same thing. We can be unified by the gospel. And we can share in that time together. It's our privilege. And so don't be weirded out with the eye contact if I'm looking at you. But it's something special we get to do. So sorry, spent a lot of time on the privilege. Next is the pattern. The pattern. How often should we share in the Lord's Supper together? Again, I don't want to be legalistic because we don't have an explicit biblical reference to the frequency of how often we should share in this time together. We do see, though, that it was a regular part of their regular gatherings. Now, whether that means weekly, whether that means monthly, honestly, we don't know. But we have chosen to do it weekly here. We don't look down on anyone who does it a different way. What seems clear in Scripture that at least it's not infrequent. But whether that's weekly or monthly, we may not even be weekly forever. We'll see. We simply want to look at the pattern of Scripture Pastor, author, scholar Jim Hamilton says this. Everywhere the apostles went to make disciples, they planted churches. They always baptized new disciples into membership in those churches. And those churches met on the first day of the week to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, looking for his return by partaking in the Lord's Supper. That's a pattern we see in Scripture. And so we see the privilege, the pattern, and now the power Now, we don't want to go as far as saying that the elements transform into the actual body and blood of Jesus. We know that uh, they're symbols of his body broken for us, symbols of his blood shed for us. But we also 
can be guilty of downplaying the significance because all we focus on is the negative. Again, Tony Marita shares this. Many Christians grow up only hearing what the Lord's Supper is not. In hearing such negativity associated with it, they tend to have a low view of the supper, assuming nothing special happens when we take it. In truth, we should experience profound delight and deep joy when we come to the table. We should take it repentantly, prayerfully, gratefully, and joyfully. We've talked about, uh, if you've been through our membership process here, if you've been uh, with us from the beginning, we've talked about what informs what we do in our gathered worship. We want to read the Bible. We want to preach the Bible. We want to pray the Bible. We want to sing the Bible. And we want to see the Bible. Read, preach, pray, sing, see. Read, preach, pray, sing, see. Now, when we say see, that's the one that we can get sometimes hung up on and say, what's that all about? Well, we see the gospel proclaimed in the ordinances or things ordained by God. We see in baptism, that's the initial visible outward symbol of new life in Christ. And we see the gospel visualized in the Lord's Supper. That's our ongoing visible renewal and proclamation of the gospel and this new life. So the church is encouraged by breaking bread. Uh, Another section from good old Gunnar Gunderson. Man, I just wish I had a cool name like that. Gunnar Gunderson. Can't get over it. All right. Speaking of cool, he says this. We don't gather to be cool because we're not. We don't gather because there are just enough people our age because that's not the point. We don't gather because we're safe because in many places of the world, we're not. We don't gather because it's easy or convenient because we don't follow a savior who carried a pillow but a cross. Instead, we gather because we're saved. We gather because we're forgiven. We gather because we are one. We gather because we're redeemed, reborn, and commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We gather because the God we are worshiping has instituted our gathering as the main way he matures and trains and comforts us. It's not just when the songs or prayers or sermons touch our souls right where we need to be touched. We meet because God builds up his people through our meeting every time, in every place, without fail, no matter how we feel. Like rain in the fields, it's how our gatherings work. So the church is encouraged by gathering, the church is encouraged by breaking bread, and the church is encouraged by preaching. The priority of preaching is clear throughout the pages of the New Testament. As we've talked about, is this passage saying we should have mandated multi-hour sermons? No. The church in Troas, honestly, was uh, making the most of their time with Paul. He was only with them for a period of time, and they thought, let's make the most of it. But John Newton, uh, famous hymn writer and pastor, said this, where uh, when weariness begins, edification ends. That's a good note for the, uh, the preachers here. When weariness begins, edification ends. So I'll do that every once in a while. Weariness is over. But Eutychus understands this, right? When weariness begins, edification certainly ends. Now, as weariness sets in here, a few notes. People have debated whether Eutychus did, in fact, die when he fell out of the window. Some of the language seems a little bit foggy. Did he die? The life was still in him. What are we talking about here? 
Now, Luke, the author of Acts, he was a physician, remember, and so uh, he could have done his quick assessment. But generally, uh, from there's a consensus with the general scholarship that says the language used here is, yes, Eutychus did die. He was taken up dead. But amazingly, Paul runs down and God heals this young man. And the church is now celebrating the restored life of Eutychus, Eutychus's resurrection, on the Lord's Day, where they're celebrating Jesus' resurrection. That's a perfect sermon illustration in that moment for them. And so the application here isn't necessarily don't fall asleep in a sermon or don't sit next to an open window during a long sermon. Although those are good application points, that's not directly what we see. But I want to spend a few minutes thinking about Even if you're not the one up here behind the pulpit, even if you aren't the one preaching, you can prepare for preaching. You can prepare for a sermon. Again, we see the priority of preaching is clear through the New Testament. So it's something that as a church, we should take seriously. When I was a kid, I remember going to play sports and I would never stretch. Never stretch, you know, never warm up. Just go, hey, I'm playing baseball, bam, running, and I'm gone. I'm certainly not old, but as I get older, I'm learning the importance of a good warm-up and stretch. And so maybe there's seasons in your life where you come to church and you say, I don't need any warm-up. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to soak it in. I'm attentive. I'm locked in. Maybe you're a new believer. Maybe it's just one of those seasons. But there's other times in your life where you need a warm-up and you need a stretch. And so I want to give you a bunch of things, another bunch of P, alliteration. Maybe it's not an alliteration. It's a lot of the same word. But a bunch of things how you can prepare for the preaching moment. So first of all, I want you uh, to consider how you could prepare your heart as part of your warm-up routine. Prepare your heart. You need God's word. Not just your spouse that you're elbowing. Not just your kids. Not other members. They do too. But you need God's word. And so come humble and expectant. This is not a spectator sport. So prepare your heart. Also prepare your mind. It's getting a little bit more practical. And this is not for the reason you might think about the Eutychus situation, but get a good sleep. Right? This is like the worst day, uh, daylight savings time, to preach on Eutychus, that whole situation. But get a good sleep so that you can engage. Do whatever it takes. Take notes. Bring your Bible. Have it in your lap. Read the passage beforehand. If you miss part of the sermon for uh, about 20 little reasons why we may miss parts of the sermon... Go home and watch some of the live stream while you're making lunch. Uh, Check out the podcast in the middle of the week to cement the application. Prepare your heart and prepare your mind. Speaking of cementing in the application, prepare or partake in community. As you read the passage in advance of Sunday, do it with your family. Do it with your friends. Do it as a community group. Maybe it's the last thing you do as a community group uh, as you consider the next time you'll see each other will be the Lord's day when you sit under God's word. Uh, How about a discipleship group? You could do the same afterward. You could read through the passage tonight around the dinner table. You could do it tomorrow morning in your quiet time. Uh, Every week we put questions, sermon questions, in the bulletin. If you grab a bulletin, there's sermon questions in there. Uh, We don't do it just for fun. We do it so that you can use them. And so I pray that you would be encouraged, whether that's uh, on your own or in community. But again, this is a team effort. Uh, Next P here, perform quality control. Perform quality control. We want to guard one another against false teaching. 
Paul shared to the Galatians. If anyone comes preaching another gospel, even an angel from heaven preaching another gospel, that's not okay. Not okay. And so I tell you the same thing from this pulpit right here. If anyone is preaching you another gospel than what you see in God's word, you need to do something about it. Don't put up with it. Perform quality control. The next one, prepare to be equipped. Consider how God's word applies in your life, how it fuels the mission. Allow God's word to equip you to live your life on mission. And then last but certainly not least, pray. Pray for the the teaching of God's word. Pray for who's preaching. Pray that you would have ears to hear and that God would open your heart. So that gives you a lot to do. That's a, that's a big stretching regime. But it, as we see the significance and the importance and the pattern of preaching in the New Testament, that's a good thing. That's how we work towards this factory of encouragement. We see the church encouraged by all this that happens in Troas here. But maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, even whether you're a Christian or not, maybe you've experienced something different than a factory of encouragement. And I'll tell you, sinful people that we are, we don't always get this right. Now, we, at Heritage Grace, we will not always get this right. But don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. It's our failings that, and stick with me here, it's our failings that should actually make us more encouraged. How's that? How could our failings make us more encouraged? Because the greatest encouragement we, we could ever have is that Christ died to redeem us in our failings. Christ died to redeem sinners. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, consider what it would mean to have that, that factory of encouragement. Consider what it would mean to have encouragement beyond explanation. And I would encourage you, turn from trying to manage your own life, trying to manage your own salvation and look to Jesus. It's in Christ alone that our hope is found. We're going to be sharing in the Lord's Supper in a few uh, moments. If you haven't responded in that way, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you haven't trusted Jesus with your whole life by repenting and believing in him, uh, please don't eat the wafer and the juice. Even if you grabbed it, uh, please don't eat. But instead, consider something far more precious than a wafer that honestly doesn't taste that good and warm grape juice. Something far more precious is Christ's righteousness credited to you in exchange for your wrongs. That is a source of encouragement beyond explanation. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you know that that is the most encouraging thing ever, that Christ died for you. Christ died for you. And so we proclaim that in sharing this small meal together. We proclaim that on this Lord's Day as we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. This is the, the fuel that drives encouragement. And so the church can and should be a factory. Again, visualize. Factory, church, smokestack, and encouragement pouring out of it. The church can and should be this factory of encouragement. And it doesn't, it doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come from nowhere. We look at John 13, 34. It says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
you also are to love one another. Again, we love because he first loved us. We see riddled through the pages of scripture that we are to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That plume of encouragement, it doesn't stop there. It's visible to the outside world. The very next verse, John 13, 35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So as we sit under God's word, as we share in the Lord's Supper together now, consider again what it means to be the gathered church and the privilege it is to look at your brothers and sisters beside you, sinners saved by grace, and the privilege that it is to be sharing this meal to proclaim Christ's death until he comes.